Hello, everybody. I'm David Schuster, and welcome to the conversation. What a terrible few weeks this has been in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. 227 Palestinians have been killed, including 64 children. A dozen Israelis have died in the conflict. This all began a few weeks ago when Israeli settlers tried to uh, evict some Palestinians from East Jerusalem. That escalated to clashes at the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem. That then escalated to Hamas firing thousands of rockets from Gaza into Israel. Israel, of course, responded with heavy bombing campaigns. Here to talk about all of this is John Haltewanger. He is the, uh, he's, a, he's a politics reporter for Insider and specializes on national security and foreign policy. John, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. John, first talk about the, um, the how this sort of conflict uh, compares to previous Israeli-Palestinian conflicts, specifically in Gaza. It feels like this time around, as opposed to five or six years ago, has been heavier, with the exception of Israeli troops actually not being on the ground in Gaza. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's the bloodiest fighting we've seen since 2014. And we're honestly seeing a lot of the same tactics used this time around um, as, as that Israel used in 2014 in terms of using airstrikes to level buildings, level entire apartment buildings and residential buildings, um, and using similar justifications as they did in 2014, saying that, well, Hamas is using human shields here. So that justifies us taking out these large 13-story buildings. We saw over the weekend, of course, that that became especially controversial when Israel's uh, conducted an airstrike that took down a, a building containing offices for AP and Al Jazeera, two very prominent media outlets. So we're seeing a lot of very similar tactics here. The death toll is mounting, uh, and it's, it's very unclear when the fighting will stop, as Netanyahu just hours ago seemed to rebuff Biden's calls for de-escalation uh, by saying that the offensive would continue until they accomplish uh, the aim of it. And he was not very clear on what that, that is at, at this time. One of the aims of progressive Democrats is to try to get Biden to be perhaps a fairer arbiter of the conflict. It seems like Biden has given essentially a free hand to Netanyahu, at least until now. Tell me a little bit about the divide you're seeing among Democrats over how Joe Biden has handled this. Yeah, well, we definitely seem to be at an inflection point in terms of U.S.-Israeli relations, um, we're seeing a growing number of progressive Democrats step up and criticize Biden essentially for not taking a more nuanced approach um, to this conflict, for continuing talking points that we might have heard from presidents, you know, 10, 20 years ago, uh, defending Israel's right to self-defense without expressing much concern for Palestinians or the broader conditions that have facilitated this conflict, the occupation of Palestinian territories, the uh, evictions in East Jerusalem that you spoke of earlier. So there, there's a big push for Biden to speak more on these matters, to uh, uphold his pledge to have a foreign policy that is centered on human rights. Uh, many progressives like Rashid Tlaib and Ocasio-Cortez have said that Biden's approach to this thus far has really undermined his pledge to center his foreign policy on human rights. And it's really putting Biden in a tough position. He came into this this renewed violence pretty unprepared. He doesn't have an ambassador in Israel. There's no consulate in Jerusalem. There's no means of communication with the Palestinian side either, at least on the ground. So he has progressives criticizing him. He has really nobody. Uh, he, they did send an envoy, I should say, there to help deal with the situation, but doesn't have a senior diplomat there on the ground. And it's, it's very interesting to watch this develop in Washington and, and see Biden be pushed into the corner. Uh, initially, the administration was very wary of publicly embracing a ceasefire in any form. They have blocked uh, several uh, uh, statements in the UN Security Council 
aimed at condemning the violence in Gaza and pushing for a ceasefire. Finally, on Monday, Biden said he uh, supports a ceasefire. Uh, he wasn't very imminent with his phrasing of that. And today he stepped it up slightly by saying he would like to see a de-escalation de of tensions today. The politics of all this are fascinating because clearly Joe Biden is worried about uh, Jewish voters who overwhelmingly support Democrats. And yet it almost feels like, based on the polling that I've seen over the last couple of years, most Jewish voters, most Democratic Jewish voters, actually don't support some of the policies of the Likud government by Netanyahu. They don't support the settlements and the disputed territories. They don't support the heavy-handed approach towards Palestinians, treating them as second-class citizens. So is Joe Biden making something of a perhaps a political miscalculation as he tries to figure out where to come down if it's a purely political decision for him driven by U.S. domestic politics? Uh, the case could definitely be made for that. Obvi you know, obviously, the, the conversation on Israel in the U.S. has changed, where people, uh, prominent politicians, are less afraid to step up and say, hey, we have some very real concerns about the way the Israeli military is conducting itself in these conflicts with Hamas. Uh, we have some very real concerns about the Israeli occupation and the general treatment of Palestinians. Uh, we have AOC echoing reports from top human rights groups like Human Rights Watch, that have said that uh, Israel's treatment of Palestinians essentially amounts to a form of apartheid. And I think that that is also translating into uh, Democratic voters changing their views on this. It's kind of a, a reflexive process at the moment, where people are saying, okay, maybe we can re-examine this. They're not as afraid of kind of one of the knee-jerk responses to criticism on Israel in the past was basically allegations of anti-Semitism. People have begun to reject that. Um, in many ways, I think Senator Bernie Sanders played a large role in that as someone who is Jewish, uh, who's, who, who had many families die in the Holocaust, and who lived in Israel. Uh, he stepped up about five years ago and criticized Israel over its uh, what he described as disproportionate use of force in 2014. And we've really seen a major shift in the conversation since then. And speaking of shifts, I mean, for so long, Americans have simply viewed Israel as, oh, they're our best friend in the Middle East, they're the only true democracy. And yet, to really truly be a democracy, Israel would have to, of course, include the Palestinians. In order to do that, Israel would cease to be the Jewish state that it wants to be. So it's, it's as if Israel has a choice. It can either be a Jewish supreme sort of state or... It can be a democracy in which the, the, the Jewishness would be diluted because of the Palestinian populations. But it seems like Americans aren't ready, perhaps like Israelis, to try to make that choice. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, the Biden administration is using talking points on the peace process that are 20 years old. It needs to come up, it, it seems like, with a new paradigm to really uh, address the realities on the ground, that a two-state solution is incredibly far from happening. That's the main U.S. goal and has been for years. The Trump administration didn't really take that approach, given their policy largely slanted towards favoring uh, Netanyahu's government and its, its policies. So yeah, absolutely. In the US, Biden is really struggling to come up with a coherent approach to this at present, a, an approach that actually matches what's happening on the ground, and an approach that matches the political discourse on the Israel-Palestine conflict in Washington. Uh, he seems to be operating uh, as if it's you know still the 90s, uh, but things have changed since then. And one of the changes, of course, is that uh, in the 90s, of course, Israel actually occupied Gaza, they got out, and the Israeli allegation is that the Palestinians led by Hamas then made a mess of Gaza and turned it essentially into a terror base. 
Israel response has essentially turned Gaza with its two and a half million Palestinians into an open air prison. There's a blockade, it's enforced by Israel, it's enforced by Egypt. And so you have these humanitarian disasters uh, whenever there are conflicts. Is there more that the United States could be doing specifically to help in terms of providing more humanitarian relief and perhaps pressuring the Israelis to, to ease up on the bombing so that people who have lost power, who have lost food, who have lost their homes can, can be helped? Well, there's a major push right now for Biden to consider conditioning uh, military aid to Israel, um, to the $3.8 billion per year that the United States gives to Israel in military aid. Um, there's been legislation introduced to that effect within the past uh, few months. Uh, and today, uh, 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 Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Mark Pocan and Rashida Tlaib introduced a resolution to block a $735 million uh, sale of precision-guided weapons to Israel. So there's a huge push for that, for uh, Biden to recognize that the U.S. has a major influence over Israel, purely through the amount of funds that we give them every single year, and for him to consider the fact that if you sit down at the table with Netanyahu and you say, hey, look, uh, the, the money might dry up if you don't change things, that could have an influence. And that is really a major push that we're seeing in Washington right now from everyone, from prominent senators like Senator Bernie Sanders to uh, younger progressive Democrats like AOC. And the irony is that in Israel, there's some Israelis, at least on the right, who say, you know what, if the United States doesn't want to give us weapons, then so be it, we'll do it ourselves, we'll, we're just fine. What's the relationship like right now as far as uh, Benjamin Netanyahu and Joe Biden? I mean, Netanyahu was obviously very close to Donald Trump because of Donald Trump's uh, very strong pro-Israel support and essentially looking the, the other way at, at whatever Israel was doing. Um, and Netanyahu clearly wanted Donald Trump to be reelected, but what's the sort of relationship that exists between Netanyahu and Biden? Well, it's publicly cordial. They're, they're reiterating many of the same talking points that we see all the time. Uh, you know, as Netanyahu basically rebuffed Biden's calls for de-escalation today by saying the offensive would continue, he also thanked the, the Biden administration for uh, maintaining Israel's right to self-defense. But clearly, Biden is struggling to have an influence over uh, the Israeli leader. He called for de-escalation, and Netanyahu essentially, without saying it directly to Biden, said, no, we're going to continue to move forward with the operation. So it's friendly in public. Um, it does seem that the Biden administration is, is trying to take a more private approach um, to pushing Israel towards a ceasefire, but we're not really seeing results so far. And a lot of civilians on both sides are suffering on the ground. Yeah, and John, I'm with you. I do think that there needs to be some sort of a paradigm shift. I mean, Israelis refer to this, the conflict in Gaza, as essentially mowing the, mowing the lawn, that every now and then they have to trim back Hamas in Gaza and, and people have to die. But that doesn't really solve the existential problem for both sides. I mean, there, there has to be some new way of looking at how Israel, and largely a lot of Americans, too, who are in these occupied territories— who are the settlers who are in areas that are disputed. But uh, in any case, John Haltewanger, he is the um, politics reporter who focuses on national security and foreign policy for Insider. John, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Welcome back to The Conversation. I'm David Schuster. We all probably know people who don't believe in science, don't believe in basic facts, feel like they are entitled to their own worldview no matter what science and facts tell us. So what, if anything, can our society do about that? Well, joining us to talk about this is Andy Norman. He's the director of the Humanism Institute at Carnegie Mellon University. 
Uh, he studies how ideologies short-circuit minds and corrupt moral identity. His latest book is called Mental Immunity, Infectious Ideas, Mind Parasites, and the Search for a Better Way to Think. Andy, thanks for joining us. First of all, what exactly is mental immunity? Uh, thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be here. So mental immunity is the mind's resistance to the uptake of bad ideas. Uh, now, it happens that uh, each of us is more or less susceptible to sketchy ideas of different types. And the more susceptible we are, the less immune we are. So susceptibility and immunity are kind of inverse notions. So we're all susceptible. And, and what depends, what, 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 what changes that? What are the sort of things that could make us more susceptible or less susceptible to wacky stuff? Right. So traditional way of thinking about this is that by teaching critical thinking, we become less susceptible to wacky ideas. And there's certainly some truth to that. The problem is that the concept of critical thinking is a very blunt instrument, and it doesn't give us much insight into how to do it properly. But it turns out that the concepts uh, borrowed from the science of immunology shed astonishing light on ways in which we can basically inoculate our own minds and each other's minds against the worst forms of cognitive contagion. And what are some of those concepts from immunology? Right. So uh, so the idea of a, of a mental immune system is one, but uh, there are ideas out there that actually disrupt mental immune function. There are other ideas out there that enhance or boost mental immune function. There are immu mental immune disorders of the mind, um, whereby people lose the ability to distinguish between right and wrong or or truth and falsehood. Uh, and by understanding, using concepts like these to understand the phenomenon of, say, conspiracy thinking, um, we actually gain a, a great deal of insight into how, uh, how we can educate people so as to be less prone to these yep. deformations of thought. Now, I'm glad you mentioned conspiracy theories, because one of the, the big picture items that I wanted to look at with all this is it does feel, at least, because of the rise of nationalism and some would argue the fascism tendencies of Donald Trump, that there has been more of this sort of idea of embracing things that are defined by basic science and basic facts. Is yeah. that accurate to say that uh, there is a connection or a correlation between a rise in people who don't have this sort of immunity and uh, what's happening at a national political level. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's a phenomenon from, uh, a concept from psychology called identity protective cognition. And the idea is that if you hitch your identity to a set of controversial ideas, then you become highly resistant to any questions or challenges to those ideas. And in fact, the, way to, the proper way to understand this is to see this identity formation as actually hot wiring your mind's immune system so as to make it so you can't even dialogue in a fair-minded way about the ideas that have become central to your identity. Um, so the way we avoid that is to uh, teach people when young, don't identify with your beliefs, because if you do, you're compromising your own immunity to bad ideas. There have been studies through the years that suggest specific uh, personalities or personal types that are more likely to be conservative, more likely to be liberal. Um, have you found that those personal types are also categorized as well? Yeah, I mean, I think any one of us can become insecure enough to cling to ideas. So when you don't have a lot else going for you or you've been gone through tough times, 
uh, it's easy to latch on to ideas that you think help to secure you as a as a stable, uh, virtuous person. Uh, so I think we're all prone to this. And I've gone through periods of my own life where uh, my own thinking became kind of sketchy because I was in a really difficult, say, professional situation. Um, so one way to improve our resistance to bad ideas is to help people find stable niches in the world where they can feel secure. So let's take this to the economic disruption that we've seen for the last several years. And I think there's a study out of Oxford that something like a half of all jobs that exist are going to be gone in 20 years because of automation. So you have industries that are changing very quickly. You have uh, entire communities that are being hollowed out, people having to learn new ways of work. There's this incredible economic disruption anyway, never mind the economic disruption that comes from the pandemic. And it feels like then when somebody comes along, whether it's a Donald Trump or somebody else and says, hey, I've got the solution. The, the solution is let's stop those immigrants from crossing the border and taking your jobs. Um, that that's appealing to a certain number of people. Absolutely. I, I think there's tons of evidence now in supporting that idea. I don't know quite what to think of this um, apocalyptic idea that the, the robots are going to take all our jobs, but I definitely think it's cause for concern and we need to start preparing a future that uh, prevents some kind of uh, catastrophic s social dislocation. Well, whether it's in a society that's changing because of automation or whether just people lose their jobs and they're dealing with economic anxiety, you mentioned there are periods in our life when we're more susceptible uh, to this. Um, could that also be, say, a period in life where if you're politically active and you've been working for particular causes for a long time and then you say, well, wait a second, you see, you know, Washington's broken. I can't get anything done. The system is messed up. Can that be a period in your life where suddenly somebody comes along and says, you know what, we're going to drain the swamp, we're going to break the system, and we're going to destroy all these institutions? I would imagine that could feel very satisfying to some people. Well, absolutely, and very seductive, right? Um, I mean, look, we, we've we've tolerated a kind of low-level corruption in our society for a very long time. I mean, our lit political leaders have bought into the idea that you you have to raise money to run a political campaign. And that's a distorting influence that we've simply grown too comfortable with. And we shouldn't be surprised that there's a huge that we're witnessing a huge backlash right now. Um, yeah, the the idea that the swamp is is irredeemable, irredeemable, and that we have to uh, rise up against our oppressors becomes enormously seductive when uh, when politicians haven't been listening to the less well healed among our, the American citizenry. We've been talking a lot at the macro level, what's been going on with Donald Trump and nationalism, but on a more sort of micro level and how we sort of started the conversation, all of us know people, neighbors, friends, maybe even relatives who seem to embrace these ideas that defy logic. Are there things that we can say to them in one-on-one -on -one conversations or smaller settings that can help them start to see basic science and basic facts without insulting them? Yeah, wonder wonderful question. Uh, the short answer is that it's much easier to prevent a, a mind infection than it is to cure one. So the science seems to indicate that prevention, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of uh, cult deprogramming, so to speak. Um, however, that doesn't mean that your cranky uncle who who's always worried about the government coming to seize his guns, that there's no way to reach him. Uh, the black blues musician Daryl Davis has actually met regularly with Klansmen and deconverted them by number first and foremost listening to them, 
and respectful listening and judicious use of clarifying questions can be a very powerful tool in helping to deprogram somebody who's been sucked down a rabbit hole. So for example, if I've got uh, somebody on my street who say doesn't believe in vaccines, who thinks that they cause all sorts of problems rather than just being judgmental and saying, oh, wait a second, you're crazy. It's, well, tell me a little bit more about what, where does this sort of come from? What are your fears? Uh, what, what is it that, that bothers you? Beautiful. I, I think uh, I'm tempted to call the method to deprogram the crazy cranky uncles, the tell me more method. And so I think you're channeling exactly the right idea there. Get them to open up, help them feel safe exploring their ideas. And a lot of times they'll start to see the weaknesses in their ideas themselves, but you got to give it time and it takes patience. Now, are there certain types of people or certain, you mentioned that when somebody's already sort of believing in a conspiracy theory or a cult, and let's say, you know, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene and, and whatever beliefs that she and others may have had about QAnon, are there some people that are too far gone that it's not worth the time uh, and the energy invested to try to help them? Yeah, probably. I hate to write off anyone, but but yeah, I'm not going to waste my time trying to to deprogram Marjorie Taylor Greene. And I think I can put my effort to better use uh, trying to save people from the kind of demagoguery that she's peddling. And as far as our own approach towards the world, what are some of the things that all of us in our daily life, whether when we're watching the news or reading the newspapers online, whatever we're doing, or having conversations with people, what are the sort of things that we should be remembering and the conversations we should be having with ourselves to protect ourselves on this? Beautiful, beautiful question. So it turns out that doubts are the mind's antibodies. So if you learn to listen, even to the little quiet doubts in the back of your mind, a lot of times they're trying to call attention to a problematic feature of an idea or a course of action that you're considering. Learn to pay attention to your doubts and your mind's immune system will get stronger and express your doubts to others in non-threatening ways so that they can hear them and their immune systems will get strong, mental immune systems will get strong. It's so interesting because I've got a very good friend down in Washington, D.C. who said, you know what, you should spend a little time in that room where you're sort of where you have that depression, visit that depression, visit, try to sort of embrace it and understand it. And it seems counterintuitive, but in the long haul, it seems like, well, if you spend time sort of trying to figure it out and sort of being at peace with the fact that sure, all of us get depressed, it becomes easier to find out what the motivator is. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Okay. Andy Norman, he is the director of the Humanism Initiative at Carnegie Mellon University. The latest book he has is Mental Immunity, Infectious Ideas, Mind Parasites, and the Search for a Better Way to Think. Andy, thanks so much for joining us today. I appreciate it. My pleasure, David. And thanks to all of you for watching the conversation. On behalf of Asher Cofield, I'm David Schuster. Thanks again, everybody.